0: Hello and welcome to the Three Things Podcast. This week we have Aaron O'Grady, who is a musician and composer and does the musical arrangements for a group called Glasshouse Ensemble. He's going to tell us three things about arranging music. I'm your host, George Shurker. This is episode four. Hi, Aaron. Hi, George. So tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Uh, So my name is Aaron. Uh, I'm a semi-professional musician. Um, I went to... um, Uh, the Royal Irish Academy of Music Mm -hmm. uh, for my undergrad and I did composition there from 2012 to 2016 Mm -hmm. Um, and since then I have been working as a music teacher and uh, a performer and kind of composer arranger freelance as well Um, I play the tenor saxophone mainly but I also play um, the piano and the clarinet and uh, a few other instruments so you're multi
0: uh, multi instrumented
1: yeah, yeah. I, I like to think so, but I know there's people out there that are genuine- multi instrumentalists that put me to shame so <laughs> um
0: where did your passion for music begin
1: um oh God, I suppose as long as I can remember um my family would would be kind of descended from a lot of musicians, like my granddad's uh, father was um was an opera singer in Wexford and um, though I think he kind of gave it up after a while but it, it, there was always kind of an inherent um, like musicality in the uh, O'Grady family anyway and then my grandmother um, was always sang in choirs and uh, when <clears throat> she used to bring me to school <coughs> and uh, she'd have Lyric on and I think I was one of the first people to tune in to Lyric FM um, when it started, like <laughs> I think it was tw- uh, twenty years ago, so I would have been five. Uh, so in the car on the way to on uh, to school and entering the competitions and stuff, and it was, I think that that was kind of that, the the, God, the birth, yeah, yeah, of of, of 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 that kind of love of music. And were you playing and, instruments from a young age? Um, I did piano lessons um, in school, but I hated them. <laughs> like it was just, and I felt like I was being forced to do it as well, and and. Uh, I gave I gave it up I think after about two years but I think sometimes it's good to g- get your child to like start an instrument mm-hmm. same as like any sport or hobbies like chess or swimming or but um, uh, I think unless there's a love there from the beginning you're just going to be pulling teeth for a long time so and after yeah.
0: after you uh, quit the piano then wh- uh, when when did you start playing music again?
1: Um, I started guitar lessons when I was I think uh 10 9 or 10 mm. and uh it was kind of meant to be a surprise for my mom my my granny paid for the lessons and then I played uh summertime which was my mom's favorite song to her nice. on her birthday um and I was like rehearsing in my granny's bedroom like singing it to her and she said like, yeah no it sounds good now um and uh yeah so th- and then and then I went to to school to Abbey and I I was like taking up a new instrument every week. It was like, in the first year, it was drums uh, and guitar. Second year, I took up saxophone. Uh, then I quit drums and guitar, I took up piano. And then I was, when everyone else was playing tip rugby, I was like down in the, the music cellar, as I like to call it, just playing piano. Mm-hmm. Even in the 15-minute break, like, i just run down because I, I just couldn't stay away from it, you know. Would you call it an obsession? Oh, yeah. I mean, back then, it was an obsession mm-hmm. I could, because now it's work. Mm-hmm. uh there's kind of a different relationship there um but back then I was just like I didn't even know I was playing but I just loved hearing the sounds so much
0: mm-hmm. you were yeah. just driven by the experience of playing music
1: yeah yeah and it was kind of a safe place as well like I always had there to go to uh when I was feeling stressed about something and I could just just let go and and I think uh that was where <clears throat> I, I started kind of composing because it was just literally something coming out of nothing. Um and I and I had no real proper formal music training. So it was like this thing that was just inside me that was trying to come out. So that was kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Um and then obviously now I know that there's so many composers out there. Uh and like I'm like I'm in a collective of composers, it's called the Irish Composers Collective and this there's been around 100 members at certain points and they they come and go. But when I was in school, I was like, I'm the only person doing this. <laughs>
0: and what kind of music uh, are you drawn to?
1: Um, I think, yeah, it's a good question. Um, I've always been very drawn to kind of modal music. So, um, and very kind of like deep chordal music, anything that has like a really... Rich texture and um, so, like classical music, like that is like really structured and everything. While I can appreciate it, my ear wouldn't be drawn to it, I would just hear it kind of almost like a, a non music composer would say, Oh, that's that's very classical music. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas I was kind of like this almost like jazz, but but stripped back or something. What's uh, what's what do you mean by modal? So, uh a lot of people know about like major, minor so that kind of major is the happy sound and minor is the sad sound and then modal is kind of somewhere in between mm-hmm. um, so if you were to play all the white notes uh, on a piano uh, from say middle C up to C and then you started at D and went up to D but still playing white notes uh, th- there's basically from C, D, E, F, G, A, B uh, there's seven modes there mm-hmm. and each one has a kind of attention within it that gives it its quality, and jazz musicians use it a lot. But I I like to use them in different ways, and then other composers uh, like um, Messian and um, uh, Ravel even have used modes and Debussy as well, like uh, whole tone scales using less than seven notes. Mm. But basically, there's just it just opens up a kind of uh, loads more sound worlds mm-hmm. because you're. You're not restricted to the happy or sad feeling. You're kind of in this middle ground, and I think that's what really grabbed me from a young age. It's like a complex notes that say more than one thing at
0: once. Exactly. Yeah. <clears throat>
1: like uh, a, a musical person will know what like kind of uh, a cadence is, or like a, a five-one like kind of re- resolution. Whereas uh, a lot of the music that I would write now and and uh, that a lot of contemporary music is there is no resolution there's just this kind of um blank canvas and that you're just it's just gestural almost mm-hmm. um and there can be emotion there but really it can just go anywhere which is which is great <laughs> interesting
0: so uh, you brought us in three things um can you tell us what
1: the three things are yeah. uh, so the three things i brought uh, today are interpretation balance, and performance. Okay, cool. So um, interpretation, that's basically uh,
0: the meat of a lot of what you do, right? Yeah. And uh, what is interpretation when it comes to music?
1: Um, So musical interpretation, I guess there's how you hear something compared to how someone else hears something. So when I hear a piece of music, uh, I'm picking out instruments, I'm picking out chords and kind of chord qualities um uh whether it's very basic kind of two note or three note chord or it's like maybe seven or eight notes and that's like could be covered by uh 10 different instruments mm-hmm. kind of and different doublings and stuff um and then there's i suppose interpretation just kind of what style is it is it um uh, a pop song or is it like kind of a uh, a folk song with kind of some string accompaniment um and then i suppose there's interpretation of the mood as well what what a song is trying to say and whether that matches with the 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 actual sound world that's mm-hmm. happening so sometimes when i listen to a song i hear all this all these things going on in the actual notes and pitches Mm -hmm. whereas the lyrics are saying something totally different Mm -hmm. Um, I suppose uh, one song that I really like uh, to use for this would be uh, Someone Great by LCD Sound System Mm -hmm. so that's a really sad song um, uh, about loss whereas the music itself has this kind of infectious optimism to it and i think i remember the first time hearing that song i was like this, this song makes me like happy and sad at the same time and i was just obsessed with it it was like a, a nostalgia for like a time that i'd never experienced or something um and i think if when i have arranged that song it was kind of in some ways when i have arranged it kind of ruins the the experience mm-hmm. because you know exactly what's going on you've mapped it all out uh, whereas hearing a song for the first time and you're not analysing it is uh, is just so special and you can never have that a second time. Is there any
0: way of capturing that uh, first
1: impression when you first listen to a track? I guess it would come down to if it's a song that has a lot going on that you can just bring into your arrangement uh then that's great but sometimes you have to add something to it and it's never going to be exactly the same because the people that are going to be playing it at the end of the day are always going to be different mm-hmm. um but i suppose once once i've notated it there's kind of an excitement like even if it's um three notes that you love the sound of just there's kind of a you kind of get a rush as you put it into say a violin line and then you you say, "Oh, I want them to do this thing as well, like maybe uh, a tremolo, which is like really fast bowing on a note, and it just you're adding something extra to it, um, or you, you might add in extra harmonies that aren't there in the song." Um, so, you work mostly with ensemble groups. So, what is an ensemble group? So, an ensemble is basically a group of musicians, or even uh, musicians and actors, or uh, uh, narrators, or dancers. So. Uh, mostly I work with strictly ensembles but then they might be going on to uh, perform with a, a, a ballet company mm-hmm. um, and or or there could be actors on stage or something like I've worked with um, the Irish Na- National Youth Ballet before and that was I wasn't even thinking about the dancers when I was like doing the arrangements because that was my job mm-hmm. but uh uh, the ensembles that I've worked with uh, have ranged from uh, like student orchestras, uh, such as Trinity Orchestra, mm-hmm. to a more uh, kind of semi-professional, uh, professional uh, musicians in the form of this ensemble called Glasshouse, mm-hmm. uh, which I've been working with almost exclusively for the last few months in terms of arrangements and that. So, um, and I'm currently working on uh, a set of arrangements of Bonnie Vera's music oh, for cool. yeah for. Uh, Per gig at the end of March. How's that going? Uh, yeah, it's going. It's going well. It's. Um, I've arranged uh, the music of Sufjan Stevens for them before, as well as Johan Johansson. Mm-hmm. So with Sufjan Stevens, his music is so orchestral anyway, and there's so much going on in it. Um, and it was the, particularly the album uh, Illinois. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so there's like so many instruments on that record uh, played by Sufjan himself and then all of his like extremely talented friends and arranging that was mostly just an exercise of listening to various parts and just basically dictating which, which means figuring out what instrument was mm-hmm. and the pitch and the rhythms mm-hmm. that they're using. And do you just do that by ear? Yeah, mostly by ear I don't have perfect pitch but I can kind of I have relative so I can uh, I can just plug away at it mm-hmm. un- until I, I have it f- pretty accurate is that um, something
0: that you were born with or
1: did you kind of train um, I think mine was more trained mm-hmm. because when I first went to college I kind of wasn't very good at it mm-hmm. um, but I think it was something that was maybe a dormant uh, skill which then I developed but uh so that was kind of the the, uh, the elements I was working with. Sophia and it just kind of fell onto the page. Mm-hmm. And then similarly, Johan Johansson, uh, the album Orphe, was all uh, string quintet and piano and electronics. So I literally just had to take, like I'd say, 95% of what was on the record I put into the arrangements. And then I added where, where I felt stuff was missing or I, I thought I wanted to do something slightly different. Uh, I was able to incorporate that into the scores as well, whereas with Bonnie Ver, it's a lot of it is very folky, acoustic music, and has kind of little touches of, kind of what I would call studio wiz- wizardry from from uh, Justin Vernon, mm-hmm. uh, because uh, I just can't recreate it. So with this set of ar- arrangements, I could do anything because it's just so bare. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm trying to think of like. Things that aren't in the record at all like maybe say ar- arpeggios on the on the str- in the strings or uh, big chords in the wind instruments. So I kind of have a lot to play with, and it's exciting but also daunting because. Uh, and in terms of where interpretation goes, uh, you're arranging the music of somebody who's really well known. Mm-hmm. So if you start Skinny Love, which is like one of the most famous Bonnie Ver songs, with the piano instead of guitar you're like playing with fire there because that could that could go very wrong so there's all those kind of decisions to be made and uh, so what is the difference between working on your own music and
0: working on someone else's
1: as someone who's trained in composition uh at an undergraduate level i got involved in in arranging kind of towards the end of my degree so um i had done a little bit of arranging before i did the um to the the undergrad mm-hmm. um just just kind of in uh, an an application called MuseScore which is like a free version of Sibelius or Finale um but then when i went into college it was like okay Aaron, now this is this is the serious stuff like we're going to be looking at uh, uh Stravinsky which is kind of the great love of most contemporary composers mm-hmm. and suddenly your 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 eyes are open to like things being able to be in two keys at the same time and all this like crazy stuff and and I loved that I just fell straight into that and I was um, writing pieces using only six notes or uh, writing pieces with a particular interval um, and then uh, gradually I I became a bit not disillusioned but I kind of felt okay I can do that but I can also do uh, arrangement because it it has a more functional role in kind of society in in general uh, and that kind of brings up the whole debate of people not liking contemporary music, but for myself uh composing is is very therapeutic mm-hmm. um and it it's something I need to do be or or else I feel quite kind of restricted um and being able to do. Uh, whatever i want and not being set to a, a particular style or something sometimes arranging can get quite tedious because you're dealing with three note chords mm-hmm. four bars four, four four beats in a bar you yeah. know and 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 there is a lot you can inject into that if if you're if you know you're writing for an ensemble that will appreciate it or an audience mm-hmm. that will appreciate it um but sometimes you just you're just literally kind of, you, you kind of feel like a worker bee, mm-hmm. uh, in, in some ways. Um, what
0: kind of tools
1: do you use to arrange music? Uh, well, I suppose uh, if I was sitting down to like arrange something, I'd listen to it a few times, say on YouTube or Spotify, and then I'd say, okay, I want I want that there, and I, I and I'll put this line in the flute, and then I'll. Uh, one thing I love to do is. Um, uh, if if a piece has uh, finger plucking picking on the guitar, mm-hmm. then that that translates really well to a string quartet doing pizzicato, which is plucking the string okay, yeah. as well. So that's the term, um, and certain things like that translate over really well. Um, one thing uh, that can be really annoying is um, with pop songs, even though they sound simple, mm-hmm. because the human voice is so flexible. Uh, say the rhythms in an Adele song. Are just you'd think they're simple, but they actually go across the bar line, and there's all these like semi quavers tied to dotted quavers, and it gets really uh, it gets really annoying <laughs> because you know that the person singing the arrangement at the end of the day might not even be uh, able to read music, but you're just doing it for the sake of the arrangement. Mm-hmm. But um, I would have Sibelius open, which is the notation software that I use now, and then I'd. Uh, on my big monitor I'd have Spelius on one side and the YouTube video on the other and just literally going back and forth might be working on three seconds or two seconds at a time Um, and then you then you're there for the next however many hours that you need to be so what's your thing too? Uh, so my thing too is balance so uh, this would be balance as a musician who is self-employed trying to provide for themselves and uh every musician knows this every artist knows that doing only your art you won't get by maybe in the in in the 1800s or 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 in paris when kind yeah. of allen ginsberg and and the like were kind of just writing and people were paying them to do mm-hmm. to do this but uh nobody, and and you've seen all the memes on on facebook people saying oh there's no fee for this gig it's uh, how about 200 exposures and you're like oh my god my rent is 200 exposures (laughs) Um, so a balance that I have is is working as a music teacher Mm -hmm. and then going home and saying oh my god I have all this work to do Mm -hmm. so as an artist I think you're working all the time Mm -hmm. even when you're on the train you're thinking about the next uh, the next project that you have to do or how you're going to uh, do a particular song, uh, or what you're going to prioritize as well, um, because some some someone will say, "Oh, I need this tomorrow," and you say, "Okay, I I just have to do that," mm-hmm. even though there are things that are more pressing. But you just have to get this out of the way. And do you set yourself uh, deadlines? I mean, I try to. Um, so sometimes I'd, I'd set an, an unrealistic deadline, but that would make me, when when it came to crunch time, I'd be, like, just throwing myself into it. Mm. Um, and where do you look for motivation, then, when you're sitting in the same chair for three hours, um, five hours, eight hours, ten yeah, hours? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I've lost count sometimes, like, uh, when I was living at home my mum would say did you remember to eat today you know because you just you just wake up and that would be the only thing on your mind but mm-hmm. uh I remember with the Johan Johansson there was a track uh Finlandia and it was just this track uh, record that was just awash with um minimalism and textures and I couldn't figure out what instrument was playing what note and I, you just get quite overwhelmed mm-hmm. because, and then your phone goes and you, you take off your headphone and then you kind of emerge from this kind of place and then you're afraid to go back into it because you know that uh, you're kind of stuck mm-hmm. and maybe you go for a run or you go meet a friend for an hour or something and then you're ready to go back into it. Same with, with anything, I think. That's why we have like a lunch break, but uh, there's this kind of, you you know that when you get back into it you just kind of have to pace yourself and what I do uh, kind of a weakness is like if I have a big 7 minute thing to do I'll go to the end and then I'll go back to the beginning and I won't actually make progress I'll do do little bits Mm -hmm. and I say okay now Aaron you have to go back to bar 1 and just fill it like just go from A to B Mm -hmm. Um, and sometimes it can take you 5 hours to realise that but once you do it's like okay we're on the home stretch. <laughs> yeah, no longer looking at a uh, blank piece of uh, page. Yeah, or just a very full score that doesn't know what it wants to do. <laughs> right. I, I live with two people that have their kind of nine to five or mm-hmm. whatever it is, and and though they do have like side projects, um, that person comes home at six pm and they don't have to think about work for until the next morning. And I'd be jealous of that because I know that there's always there's always something mm-hmm. that I have to be doing or and, and a word that is always kind of going on is like have to have to have to have to do this, have to do that, um and that's pretty much constant unless I'm like on holiday or something or maybe on a night out or something so uh and the the nights out can be kind of very good because it kind of you can reset yourself for the next day, mm-hmm. um but then sometimes like okay. I actually can't do that tonight because I really need those hours to work on. This project. So mm-hmm. yeah, there's that's kind of the biggest balance is just kind of in in that there is no balance mm-hmm. because it's it's twenty four seven in a way. There's no uh, even when you're sleeping, you're like your brain's working on something. Like I've woken up uh like when I was in college I was able to stay up till six AM working on something, but now I I reach a point like say two a.m. and I'm like I'm not I'm not making any progress. I need to get up the next day, and then you don't even remember what it was like being that person. Uh, I suppose that applies to everybody. But yeah. and yeah. we can't we can't control when
0: uh, motivation or when inspiration comes to us. It exactly it can come when you're sitting on the toilet
1: or yeah, which I, I love talking about. Uh, I know it's a, a a contentious show now, but Two and a Half Men. Mm-hmm. Charlie Sheen's character is. uh is uh, explaining why he's just sitting on the couch watching uh, a movie, drinking beer all the time, and and his brother's like, "God, do you ever work?" And he was like, "That's the that's the beauty of being a composer. Like, I'm sitting uh, alone, watch having having a beer, watching TV, and I'm working because my brain is thinking of ideas. And that's kind of like a cheat <laughs> explanation that I like to give. Um, so I
0: guess you have to have like a major joy for music to make that kind of. Uh sacrifice
1: of you know being on 24 hours and oh yeah totally like there's such joy like getting to the end of like a score and saying okay file export Mm -hmm. all parts as pdf and sometimes you you're kind of going back and forth because you've put um a dynamic which would be like volume marking in the wrong place or uh one one instrumental line has is missing something that it needed and Uh, and that can be frustrating because you really want to be done Mm -hmm. Um, but by the end there's a real great sense of enjoyment and going along to that first rehearsal then and everyone's like oh great job man, great job that's really uh, satisfying So uh, let's talk about thing three so what's your thing three? Uh, So thing three is performance and kind of everything that comes with and around that Mm -hmm. So I guess... um, the first thing about performances, like when you're writing
0: that stuff, you you know in the back of your head, it's going to be listened to by not
1: just uh, an audience but by your colleagues as well. Yeah, and I I suppose that that goes back to um, the difference between arranging and composing as well, because pretty much every arrangement job I've ever had has resulted in a performance. Whereas I know some of my compositions, I can work on them freely because sometimes they're not going to be performed. Whereas the arrangements, it's like it's a product, um, more even more so than a piece of art. In some ways, it is, especially if you've put a lot of yourself into it, uh, which I definitely have for certain um, cer- certain kind of uh, arrangements. Um, but
0: um, is there any like conscientious elements to the actual performance? Like who
1: ch- who who does the solos, and for example. Um, yeah, so I suppose, I suppose uh, a lot of the ensembles I've uh, worked with, Trinity Orchestra, Glasshouse, they've had a singer mm-hmm. for Johan Johansson. There wasn't, but uh, for Sufjan and now for Bonnie Vere, mm-hmm. um, we are like kind of choosing who's going to sing this. And last night, uh, I was I I sat down uh, with the gin and tonic and <laughs> and I was like, okay, I'm going to listen to these two now and see which singer is going to sing what mm-hmm. um, and. So sometimes it's very straightforward. You say, "Okay, this will work," but then you hear about, like later on, once the line, you you hear about some drama between the singers, and mm-hmm. they said, "Oh, I wanted this song," or I didn't get enough solos, or something like or that. So. going to sing "Skinny Love"? Exactly. Yeah. So, and and that kind of there's kind of an overall um, consi- con- consideration of the fact that you're one one element of of this, even though your arrangements are kind of the start and end point there 's so much that goes on around that there's pr- promotion for the gig there 's kind of the general artistic vision um, of of the the project and what it means and who 's going to be there that might uh, bring another uh, gig into the mm-hmm. in, into the future or they have an idea on what you should work on next so I suppose with especially with Glasshouse has this kind of it, it feels like a team effort. And that's why I, I like to ask people, do you have an, any ideas for this? And uh, um, and they're always really receptive and they say, oh, maybe you should try this. And I think that's a really important part because when you're working on your own uh, for so many hours, it can be, you can start to get a bit detached from the fact that it actually is going to be presented mm-hmm. to uh, an, an audience. audience yeah. Um <clears throat> I guess the first
0: time that uh, you move from that arrangement stage into uh, like hearing the music being played is the first rehearsal. So how how is that?
1: Well, th- thankfully for me, it, it, it's it's usually well received. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes somebody can say who's who's really good at their instrument. They say, "Aaron, this doesn't really work," or or that's that's a bit difficult and to do. You do you
0: embrace those criticisms? Oh, all the
1: time. Yeah. Like it's so it's so invalu- invaluable to have like because uh Sibelius can't tell you well sometimes it tries to tell you that a violinist can't play this note when they actually can yeah. but certain things like um uh you can just be plugging away and then they say oh Aaron I can't do this uh chord because that that those two notes would be on the same string or something and that kind of stuff as an arranger is just incredible mm-hmm. because I- if I could have a room full of instruments um, around me, and and I could try out all these things. I, it would be great, but I can't play those instruments, and I don't have them. So mm-hmm. having that is just incredible.
0: Does the um, does the music change much between like that first rehearsal and the actual performance? Um,
1: sometimes, maybe the key will change because the singer is is isn't able to get to the high note, or it's too low, mm-hmm. and that can sometimes be fine. Depending on what key it's been in, so it, this kind of goes back to interpretation a bit. Say the lowest note on a on a violin is 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 a, is a G mm-hmm. below middle C, and suddenly the singer says, "Oh, it's actually it's 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 a bit too high for me. Can we bring it down a tone?" And then you're like, "Well, there's a lot of low G's on in the violin part, so I kind of have to completely reimagine it." Mm-hmm. You know, so there's most uh, thankfully that doesn't happen a lot, mm-hmm. um, but. Uh, I suppose with the with the Bonnie Iver, I'm hoping that it'll be quite flexible and that we can change things because his music, when he performs it live, is totally different from the album. There's a lot of improv- improvisatory elements to it, so I'd like to bring that in some way and that kind of gives more to the fact that the arrangement is, there's a restriction to something being on paper because... When you when you bring it into kind of an acoustic environment, it might not just it might not come across the same way. Mm-hmm. I, I like to say that music breeds differently in different uh, surroundings, mm-hmm. and that's why every gig can feel different, simply due to the environment that you're performing it in. You've finished your rehearsals. We're on gig night now. Like I guess the
0: next big bit to performance is the sound check. Yeah. Now, how important is a
1: sound check? For a group like or for a group like Glasshouse, for the kind of stuff that you're arranging, oh, like it's yeah, it's it's so important. Like when we did uh, Sufjan Stevens in the Douglas Hyde Gallery, mm. uh, there was it was a totally like it was just literally grey uh, cement walls, mm. and it sounded so bad, like mm. just so so bad, and we were really worried, uh, even though Sufjan Stevens performed. There in Ireland for the first time, uh, I think 14 or 15 years ago now. Mm. Um, and it, we were just really worried. But then once everybody, once the room was filled, that uh, acoustically treated the room. Mm-hmm. So it was like boun- bouncing off them and it wasn't kind of going up and down from the uh, from the t- top to the bottom of the room. So it sounded so much better, but we were still kind of like on edge. Did
0: you discover that uh, the audience was going to be part of your acoustic arrangement before the gig started or was this sort of like okay well the soundtrack sounds dodgy but let's just go
1: yeah I mean live sound is is such a cr- like it, it's just such a minefield mm-hmm. uh, like especially I mean even if something doesn't break uh, because in rehearsal we're just we're not mic'd up or anything but say in the middle of a gig you have a feedback problem or the, the violin's microphone isn't working properly or like it's just it it's just I, I'm really glad I'm not a sound engineer. I mean, give me like the the, the responsibility of looking after the scores any day because uh, I would just find it so daunting If when something doesn't work. But yeah, the audience it it's kind of amazing in that the audience is part of the acoustic. Uh, and literally the sound is bouncing off them back to us. And like, it's kind of... There's something kind of mystical about that. Yeah, yeah, no, it is like... Yeah, so like when you're recording something that's going out to somebody's ears through a headphones, there's there's much less intimacy there. Mm-hmm. Like you've created your own in- intimacy in the studio, whereas you're when you're performing live on stage, or especially in an outdoor venue, mm-hmm. you even the way you play is is dependent on what you're getting from the audience mm-hmm. in some ways even if you're getting silence and just kind of nodding heads like that kind of just informs what you're going to do next mm-hmm. and sometimes I have been performing with the ensemble but m- most of the time I won't be so I'll be in the audience and I'm there basically holding my breath for the whole thing <laughs> uh that's the the one difference I guess when when I have a a, a piece being performed I'm like a composition I'm like on the edge of my seat I feel like I'm playing mm-hmm. because like, I'm so self-conscious about every single note whereas with the arrangements I feel like so much has gone into it from everyone that I can relax a bit more mm-hmm. um, but at the same time I do still kind of feel like I'm on stage As the person who's done the arrangement do you feel kind of like responsible for the performers a little bit? There is an element of responsibility and you can kind of, because you are the the starting point you can feel like if anything does go wrong that they can just blame you mm-hmm. you know and obviously that doesn't really happen but uh i think so much lies on the product that you make that you can be a bit self-conscious about like if something goes wrong
0: and what is it when it, when somebody makes a mistake on on their on their instrument is that something that you immediately notice and then you're thinking about for the next 20
1: minutes or I mean, the only person that's really thinking about it is them and me. Right. <laughs> like, I'll say to them afterwards, oh, that was gas when you, like, did that instead of, like, you, you played the wrong note. But, but we say, yeah, we just laugh about it because in an hour-long concert, like, y- you have so much else going on and you're trying to focus on you have your stage presence and you're presenting not just uh, the music, but, like, yourself playing it and... There's a whole, like, this ego comes into it. There's, like, perform- even performance anxiety, which, like, is a whole other other world of, of uh, exploration. But um, um, I think uh, the audience is just there to enjoy it. So, like, if you make a mistake, you make a mistake. Mm-hmm. Like, Do you still listen to music for pleasure? That's a really good question. I actually wanted to bring that in earlier um, because... Basically, when I'm at a gig, I can't wait for it to end, and my friend thinks my friend was saying to somebody else yeah he he doesn't like gigs because he's like listening for the tuning and and like it it really like affects him if if there's something wrong and I was like, no, it's actually not that it's it's literally i can't um I just can't wait for it to end because I sit on my own listening to music for work so often that I f- I find it difficult to just be silent. I want to chat to somebody beside me or something, so I'm always I just can't wait for the gig to end. But there is some music that I do listen to for for pleasure, mm-hmm. uh, and that could be maybe Glass Animals or um, or even just I love eighties music mm-hmm. because it's just it's just dancing or it's something. Easy, yeah, exactly, very like yeah, easy. Yeah, yeah, um, but yeah, I mean, I have such a strange relationship to music. I, you know the way you, when you see like um, music is like my life or whatever mm. and it's like no it's literally like my 9 to 5 kind of so sometimes I've like I, I don't have uh, an iPod or you know mm. it, it, if you asked me the last time I sat down and listened to something just purely out of pre- pleasure I could maybe count on like one hand how many times I've done that so it's 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 kind of scary but and then like if someone said oh I'm going to go to the guitar I just yeah it's just like sometimes I feel like I don't like music Mm -hmm. but then I do it every day so it's it's I think at at some point in my life I'm just going to take a break and just like not do anything Mm -hmm. musical and it's scary to to think that I might do that but uh, exciting at the same time yeah maybe it will give you a kind of
0: renewed uh, passion for what you're doing yeah to, oh completely yeah.
1: or maybe you'll end up on a beach in India playing sitar <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> t- t- telling passers by about all of the amazing things I did and they're like he's on something <laughs> yeah. who is that guy <laughs> uh, great
0: so last question okay. like, what's it feel like when like you've, you've put together this arrangement and you've put all of these hours into it and you've done all the rehearsals and you've done the sound checks and you're in front of a live audience and they're absolutely loving it what's that feel like
1: it's yes, pretty amazing. Like, and it's, it's, just especially part of that kind of overall feeling that as an ensemble you've put so much effort into every element of of what of like rehearsal and performance, and you've really put your heart into it. And even uh, one of my friends said uh, when when she saw us play it, another love story. Somebody beside beside her said they all play with such emotion. Mm-hmm and I think that is kind of what's really special about that ensemble is that we're playing music that we really want to and it means a lot and I think that is like crucial in presenting something that people relate to Mm -hmm. and respond to and sometimes if if something if we perform and we kind of have an expectation of how the audience is going to react then we might end up being disappointed Mm -hmm. Uh, and then we say okay that that'll carry us onto the next we won't have our expectations as high Mm -hmm. because I guess maybe sometimes an audience doesn't know that that like an audience has expectations but also the ensemble has of the audience so there's this kind of uh, synergy between the two oh no I can't say synergy it's kind of a it's kind of a a symbiotic relationship Mm -hmm. you know the more you give the more you get back and then and vice versa Uh, so then when we have had like three standing ovations in a row you're just it's like it's like being on drugs or something like (laughs) it's just it's just an ecstasy and uh, after we performed at another love story last summer we were just like the response was so overwhelming we just couldn't stop hugging each other we were like just so happy and just kind of elated then for the rest of the day so it's all worth it oh yeah totally (laughs) Um, Okay, so thanks for coming in.
0: Um, That was Aaron O'Grady, Three Things About Musical Arrangements. He talked about interpretation, uh, balance, and performance. Uh, Aaron, where can we
1: hear your music played next? Um, The Bonnie Iver gigs are happening in the Sugar Club on the 27th and 28th of March. Uh, I think by now they're probably sold out. I know that Thursday night is, but we'll be doing um, Johan Johansson's Orfe. Um, on April the 18th as part of Music Town in the Chocolate Factory and that will be presented with uh, some songs by a singer called uh, Shiva Greenland as well which I'm doing some arrangements for
0: That was episode 4 of Three Things Next week we're talking with Deborah Ryan who's a chef and a food columnist We're going on a bit of an adventure into the sometimes scary, sometimes hilarious place that is The Student Kitchen So it uh, should be a good episode Thanks for listening to this one and catch you next time